Acts chapter 3 begins with uh, the narrative of the healing of a lame man. Just so you know what we're going to do today, I, I'll uh, go through the, the 10 verses that narrate this healing and give you some details about those. And then I want to show you how Luke acts is a narrative unity and how Luke gives reviews and previews in order to tell us what's important, okay? I think you'll find this very interesting. For the last 25 years, as I've understood the narrative unity of Luke Acts, it's been just fabulous. So we'll do some of that background material after we go through the first 10 verses. So let me read those 10 verses as a Introduction and then pray, and then we'll go into our exegetical work. Okay, Acts 3 and verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk and seizing him by the right hand he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened with a leap he stood upright and began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And and they were taking note of him as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this glorious healing that set the stage for gospel preaching. May we learn what you intend us to learn through the scripture that you've inspired by your Holy Spirit. Open our minds and hearts to believe what you've said. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is very powerful healing of a guy that everybody knew about because he sat at a prominent place begging, and so they would have seen him over and over and over again. That's just what his life was like. And the healing here was remarkable indeed. Now it says in Acts 3 and verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. And the, the very early church, what they did was centered around the temple. That's where the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost, and they initially were looking to witness of the gospel to their Jewish brothers and sisters 
who they would find there at the temple. As I say on my slide, this expands on the idea of Acts 2.46. What does that say? Let me read it. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The temple was an important place for the witness of early church, of the early church, the early Christians. Breaking bread together was part of what they were taught to do by the Lord, Jesus Christ. And I showed you that a couple weeks ago from Matthew 26. Peter and John are here. Probably the narrative need, if you want to say it that way, is that there would be two wit- witnesses. Okay, every fact is to be confirmed by two witnesses. These will be Peter and John, but Peter will be the spokesperson, and as we'll see, the gospel preacher. So the apostles go to the temple, and there at the temple, a lot of the things happened in the very earliest church in Acts. And we'll see later the program for Acts that's laid out in Acts 1.8, but we'll go back even further to see God's program laid out in Luke 4 and elsewhere. Okay, so that's verse 1, verse 2. It says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. This was their way If you were disabled, that's how you survived. Now, one of the remarkable things about this healing, as we read, was that he went walking and leaping and praising God. It's a miracle in many senses of the term miracle. If you've been lame from your mother's womb, even if suddenly you had muscles, you wouldn't be able to walk. Has anybody ever been hospitalized for a long period? and had to go through physical therapy to learn how to walk again. It's really interesting. It doesn't take that long. No, back in the old days, they used to leave people laying in the hospital for weeks, but now they get people up and force them to start walking. Even if you've had a a hip replacement or a knee replacement or something, by the way, continue to pray for Gene Fleetcheck, he's doing well, but he had a hip replacement. And sure enough, he's home and totally had to do physical therapy, and Nancy's enforcing that on him. <laughs> they say, and Diane had two knee replacements, do the physical therapy. Okay, so if you're laying there since you were you, from the mother's womb, you don't know how to walk. Okay, so that's another miracle. Even with muscles and sinews and everything you need, you're not going to know how to walk. So that was a very powerful miracle. Now this gate beautiful has been discussed by historians and theologians. And I have here on my slide that was likely the Nicanor gate. And the gates had silver and gold overlaid on them. But this particular one was made of Corinthian bronze and was of greater value than all the other gates. It was bigger, it was heavier, 
And Josephus talks about that. Let me read Josephus' description of this gate. Josephus was the Jewish historian from the first century. Now, nine of these gates were on every side, covered over with gold and silver, says Josephus, as were, as were the jams of the doors and their lintels. But there was one gate that was without the holy house, which is of Corinthian brass, and greatly excelled those who were covered over with silver and gold. And then he describes the gates, the doors, the heights, and so forth. He says here, skipping ahead, now the magnitudes of the other gates were equal to one another, but that over the Corinthian gate, which opened on the east over against the gate of the holy house itself, was much larger for its height was 50 cubits and its doors were 40 cubits. And it was adorned after a most costly manner as having much richer and thicker plates of silver and gold than the other. So Corinthian bronze covered with thick plates of silver and gold. So there they take the man, lame from his mother's womb, no hope for any means of sustenance other than the goodwill of the worshipers that would come by and see him there. And so the man was in that estate. And God chose on this particular day to show supernatural mercy and healing to this man who's in a most hopeless situation. And I think I'll point this out here as we get to it, but it's not wrong to look at our salvation and see an analogy. We were in worse shape than we can imagine, and God came and showed mercy upon us. And he does so through the gospel given to, Christ, through, to the apostles by Christ. So they were likely to give him alms. Verses 3 and 4, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. So he survived. Here are the witnesses. And I always point out imperatives when I find them in the Greek. Here's one. Look. It's a command. And see, this man at the gate would have been barred access from going any further into the temple courts because of a prohibition in the Old Testament law that they eventually applied more broadly than the original one. Let me just read it to you. Leviticus 21, starting with verse 17. Leviticus 21, beginning with verse 17. Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach. And it gives a list of all these defects, including being lame. Now, this only applied to those who might be Levites, but they later applied it to everyone. And so they wouldn't let anybody lame any closer than these gates on the outside. So there he was, barred from the temple in a hopeless estate, depending on the mercy of worshipers. And God here chooses to show him greater mercy 
than he could ever imagine. Acts 3, 5, and 6. And he began to give them his attention. Remember, they commanded him to look, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Here's another imperative, walk. Now, I was thinking about this. Eric oftentimes calls me. In fact, every week we talk about theology over the phone, and we would do that for many more hours had it not been for the fact we had other responsibilities. But we absolutely love talking theology and biblical interpretation on the phone. And I was pointing this one out, walk, and I think there's an analogy there. When we preach the gospel to a dead sinner and command the dead sinner to repent, it's like telling a lame man to walk. This guy can't walk. Why command him to walk when he's never made a step in his whole life? But God used the command and the power of God working through Peter and John to bring healing. And when we command the sinner to repent, we believe God can do a work of salvation and actually make the dead alive. It says in Ephesians that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. Somebody came along and told us, walk, repent, and believe the gospel. He never asked for healing. He asked for money. Dr. Peterson, whose pillar commentary on Acts is very helpful to me, says this, their initiative would demonstrate the sovereign grace of God acting through Jesus Christ to rescue and restore those powerless to save themselves. What we think we need may not be what we really need. There's a lesson there, too. Okay? We may very well be wrong in our assessment of what we need. But God is never wrong. God knows exactly what we need. It's not wrong for him to ask for alms, but God has something far greater for him. Have you ever prayed along a certain line only to find disappointment that turned into a greater blessing than you could have imagined? I have. Have anybody else? God has greater plans for us than we have for ourselves, but we don't know what they are. But he commands us to pray. And so we can pray and bring our needs and our requests to God like this guy. I need alms. Well, we don't have any of that, but we have something better. Walk. And we don't know what the something better is, but we have to believe God. And with what we do know, it's right that to request. It's right to pray. It's right to ask God. But his answer might be different. It might be ultimately better from an eternal perspective. This becomes an opportunity for the gospel. Verses 7 and 8. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. Like I said, another miracle, no physical therapy. 
They didn't have a walker for him. They didn't have a nurse. They only had the miracle of God. Begin to walk. He entered a temple with them, walking and leaping. He's doing more than that. He's leaping. But he was praising God. And that's probably the most important thing there. You might say, well, why wouldn't somebody praise God if they're healed? Anybody would. No, no. Don't be so sure about that. Oh, I wasn't planning on going here, but let me see if I can find the passage. There was a guy in John who was healed, and he had such a bad attitude, Jesus had to end up warning him. Yeah, John 5. There was a, you know, Don't assume that if somebody's healed, they're going to praise God. They don't necessarily. There's a guy in John 5, starting with verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda, in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then some, some Greek texts do have the waiting for the moving of the water. There's a textual issue with that. And then in verse 5, one man was there who had been sick for 38 years. So he's similar in some ways to this guy in Acts 3. When Jesus saw him lying there and we'd already been there a long time. He said, do you want to get well? Interesting question. Do you want to get well? You might think, well, obviously he does. Don't be so sure. The sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me in a pool when the water is stirred, but when I'm coming, someone goes ahead of me. He just starts complaining. So Jesus said, get up and pick up your mat and walk. And he got well, picked up his bent walk. Another miracle. But it was the Sabbath. Wouldn't you know it's Sabbath and now he's walking with a mat? <laughs> oh, it has to be something, doesn't it? Well, you know, you can read the story yourself. So rather than praising God, he blamed God. He said, oh, this guy over here, he's the one that told me to walk with. He just blamed Jesus. And Jesus confronted him later and said, Something worse might come on you. Better repent. Something worse will come on you. Okay. So that the lame man was praising God, I believe, in the narrative, is a sign that not only did he receive physical healing, but that God was working graciously in his heart. He was willing to give God the glory and not complain like that guy in John 5. This fulfills Bible prophecy. You might want to turn to this. And Eric and I, as we've studied narrative, believe that these allusions to the Old Testament are on purpose. Okay? This isn't just an accident that this happened and that the terms that are used in the Greek are right out of the Septuagint. This is Luke's way of telling us Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. Turn to Isaiah 35, starting with verse 4. And this is part of how we establish that Jesus is the Messiah and also his deity. Because this passage is going to say God will come and these things will happen. And here we see Jesus came and these things happen. Isaiah 35, 4. 
Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the Arabah. What did this man do? He went walking and leaping. What does it say will happen when God comes? The lame will leap. There is our Old Testament connection to this miracle in Acts 3, proving that Jesus is actually the Messiah, and that he's God who's come on the scene of history to save his people. My dear brothers and sisters, I remember 25 years ago when I started seminary and was, I had some fantastic teachers at the beginning, and as we would look through these things and learn these things, and I'd been studying the Bible before that on my own just continually for many years. And uh, it's one obvious conclusion is that nobody could figure this out. It's not that it's secret. These are all there in the text. But it's the Holy Spirit who's inspired the Scripture. It's so brilliant from Genesis to Revelation. Some redactor didn't just do this because they were clever. God did this. So there is our Bible prophecy, Isaiah 35, 6. And I have a slide for that. I forgot that I had that. But we can look at Luke 7, 22. Luke 7, 22. It's up here. Now we had John in prison, and he sent his disciples to ask whether Jesus was the Messiah or they should look for somebody else. And some have been rather shocked by that. John was a prophet from God. How could he possibly need to ask about this matter? And I think the answer is found in John's preaching earlier in Luke. He preached that the fire, now the Messiah was coming, that God would burn up the shaft. And so he was preaching about things that would happen at the second advent, the judgment of the wicked. But when that didn't happen, but rather things, other things that happened at the first advent, I think that's what caused the question. But you can maybe look at that and, and see it. other issues going on. Let me start reading in verse 18. If you're looking here at verse 22, it says in verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent him to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Verse 20, when the men came to him, they said, John, the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Verse 21, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who are blind. Verse 22, we have here on the slide, and he answered and said, go report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame 
walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who doesn't take offense in me. In other words, don't be offended that burning up the shaft in the fire didn't happen yet. It will. But he came to save, not to bring the final judgment. Came to heal, not to condemn. He came to preach the release of sins. It says the, go- the poor had the gospel preached to them. So here we have the blind receive sight, the lame walk. Again, this is a preview. One of the things that Luke does in Luke Acts is give reviews and previews. This is a review because it's reviewing prophetic material from Israel's history. Isaiah 35 and verse 6. This is a preview because it's previewing what's going to happen in Acts chapter 3, the passage we're looking at. And the conclusion of the review and the preview is that Messiah is on the scene of history and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that's thematic. We'll see that. There's a debate about who are the poor. And it's very interesting. Obviously, this lame guy would have been the poor. But in Israel in the first century, having no financial resources would certainly qualify someone for being poor. But that's not the only thing that differentiated between the poor and the not poor. The most important factor was social status. And you saw people who were excluded from the fellowship of the in crowd on the grounds of their social status, whether or not they had financial resources. And you can see that as you read through Luke Acts. There were people that actually had some considerable resources that were hated by everybody around them, but they responded to the gospel. So the issue is status. So I believe John the Baptist was probably expecting judgment, but instead came healing and salvation. So it's also interesting that Jesus answered the question by pointing to the signs of Messiah fulfilling Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy is important. And we need to preach it. And we need to see where God has fulfilled it in the past and look forward to the fact that he will in the future. Two more verses in Acts 3. And then we'll, go, we'll dig into some of these reviews and previews. Acts 3, 10, 9 and 10. And all the people saw, so now we have a public miracle, saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. We're going to talk about that in a bit. And what happened to him. So here's the guy. He'd been there his whole life, probably. It's the only way he survived was to beg alms. Have you ever been to Israel? I don't know now, but I haven't been since 83. But there were alms beggars near the temple when I went there. Did anybody? Did that still happen? Maybe not. They may have cracked down on it and won't allow it. 
But in 83, when, when I was there, there was a guy sitting there on a pallet that sure made me think of all these stories in the Bible. And he had this big ulcer eating away at part of his leg. And he was begging alms. And our guide, Matanya, said, don't give him any money. And we said, why not? He says, because that guy could go to the hospital and be cured tomorrow. It wouldn't cost him a penny. But he won't do it because he'd rather make his living this way. <laughs> That's why I say probably the authorities cracked down on it and grabbed somebody like that and brought him to the hospital. <laughs> but he, yeah, he just would rather lay there and give money from people for, out of sympathy than to be cured. He'd be more like the guy in John 5, right? Okay, so, but this guy had no other recourse. And it's right to give alms. But here was the stage set for a powerful work of God. And th there's a couple terms in here that I highlighted in red on my slide. Wonder and amazement. These are terms used by Luke to draw attention to a mighty work of God. This would be the kind of reaction that happened when God did a mighty work. I think you see that, uh, Eric could answer this, but in Mark, doesn't the term amazement show up? Yeah, it's, it's a common term in the Gospels, amazement or wonder. And I gave you some cross-references from Luke. 436, 5.9, 5.26, 7.16, 24.41, Acts 2.12. So wonder and amazement is a response to a mighty work of God. These are signs that point to the truth of Messiah and his work of redemption. These are provide the opportunity for a public witness to God's saving power. An interesting one is in Luke 5, 9. It said amazement had seized him and his companions because of the catch of fish which had they had taken the miraculous catch of fish. I have a story. After we lost a lot of our best professors, the Lord was merciful to, to me and other students by sending one guy who surpassed everybody else that I'd had, and his name was Dr. Donald Versaput. And he's the one who taught us how to study and read narrative. I couldn't do what I'm doing and have been doing for years had I not been in his class and learned about how narratives work. The class was wonderful. I've told you about it before. In the very first class, I was all excited because we got there, and he said, bring your Bibles. He said, this is going to be a unique class. We're going to read the Bible. <laughs> and we're going to start with Matthew, and we're going to open it and read through it, and see how Matthew told us the story of the gospel. And we read Matthew. And then he gave assignments, assignments which would take a pericope, or a, a unit that sort of stands together as a discourse unit. And the first one he gave us was this catch of fish. And I thought, well, I want to impress this professor. I'm going to really dig into this and... I got out the Greek, and I went back about a chapter and a half and 
found repeated terms. And Luke said this, and Luke said that, and this term, and that term, and this term, and that term. And I came up with some complicated answer, and I was wrong. <laughs> Do you know what the answer was? What's, now, the question was, what's Luke's point in this catch of fish narrative? The answer was, you shall be fishers of men. All. I thought, well, this seminary has got to be really difficult and hidden or whatever. No, it was right there. Just read that story. You shall be fishers of men. But I didn't get an astute reading commendation, <laughs> despite having a bad paper. When Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, when he saw the Lord in the catch of fish, I said that was an allusion to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, upon the theophany, said, depart from me, I'm, I'm a wicked man, or I have unclean lips or whatever. Woe is me. He said, woe is me. And Dr. Versiput said, that's an astute reading. So I've been saying that ever since to people. <laughs> That was the whole thing. And so what was so great about that class is we were learning how to read. Can you imagine that? Not learning how to doubt. Not learning higher critical analysis and redaction theories, but how to read. And he would give us these assignments. Here's a section of what's the author's point. He said, you can use any commentary you want, but be careful, they may mislead you. And then by the end of the class, I was getting it right because I learned how to read. So today, I'm going to try to help you with that. I want you to have the joy of being able to just read and see these connections and get excited about it. I hope you get excited about it. I get so excited about the gospel and the Lord Jesus and the scriptures and the fact that they're inspired. And I can't imagine why somebody would be excited about something else. Now, let's start with thematic. I want to show you something that is so brilliant in Luke-Acts. And in Luke-Acts, there are thematic passages at crucial times that set the scene and the themes of the entirety of Luke-Acts. And one such passage is Luke 4.18. Sometimes you'll read in a good commentary, this is programmatic. This is what is going to happen. Now, it's been demonstrated already. It's been previewed. Remember reviews and previews? Early in Luke, the Holy Spirit came on people and they'd speak forth truth about messianic salvation. One of those is the release from sins. I'm excited about that. Let me read Luke 4, 18 and 19, and I'll explain how this does reviews and previews and is, is uh, pro- thematic or programmatic for the entirety of Luke-Acts. Jesus, caught, this, by the way, happens in the the synagogue at his hometown of Nazareth. And there's some interesting material that 
leading up to this, but he stands up, he receives the scripture, he reads it, he sits down and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But it says in Luke 4, 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me, this Jesus saying this, to preach the gospel to the poor. Remember, I read earlier Luke 7, 22, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's Luke telling us this is a fulfillment of Luke 4, 18. This is the theme. This shows you Messiah is on the seat of history. The poor have the gospel preached to them, or to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, let's look at some of this. As I said earlier, the poor aren't just people lacking money, but they're people that have nothing going for them in any regard. They would not think they had status with God or man, whether they had any money or not. And God chooses the things that are not to confound the things that are that no one should boast before God. Amen. If we've seen these things, blessed are your eyes that see and your ears that hear. Many have desired to look into the truths of messianic salvation, but their hearts were so hardened they couldn't listen. They become angry at Jesus. They become angry at the apostles. They don't want to hear about it. So the gospel is preached to the poor. Uh, let me quote now. You want my, why don't you turn to this? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This is what Jesus is citing. So that's the review part. We have a review and a preview. He's reviewing material from Israel's history that they would know about. So this was the passage that Jesus was handed that he read in the synagogue in his hometown. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, what's missing in Luke 4.18 that you find in Isaiah 61? Vengeance. Do you see anything about vengeance in Luke 4, 18 and 19? No. Remember what John the Baptist was having an issue with? Are you the one? He had said the Messiah would bring judgment, but he wasn't. Now, this doesn't mean that he will not, but that is going to come later at the second advent. The vengeance will come. Don't be deceived. There is a hell. There is an unquenchable fire, but it comes at the second advent. So Jesus did not quote that part of it, but instead inserted something, and you can look this up, from Isaiah 58, 6. Isaiah 58, 6. Just part of this. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, 
and to break every yoke. Now it says here in our our passage to set free those who are oppressed. That comes from Isaiah 58. So the day of vengeance is left for some other time. To set free the oppressed is brought forward into Isaiah 61, and this is how it's cited. Now, something else you need to know. Now, this is really where it gets exciting. Not that it all isn't. To proclaim release. You know what that term release means in the Greek? You got it. Aphasis. Release means forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is the release of sins. So he's bringing forgiveness. This is a key word. It's thematic. It's found twice. Release and set free are the same word in the Greek. Slightly different grammatical forms. Wow. You know, if you're not excited about the gospel, it's time to get that way. People that aren't excited about the gospel, they will get taken in by other things. Eric and I saw the seminary get unexcited about the gospel. They're in Dr. Versaput's class, which I had. He died of pancreatic cancer at age 53, and that's one light that was no longer there. And they went into just utter darkness. But they were excited about how wicked it is. I've mentioned this on the radio, and Eric and I talked about it. Every chapel, everything was about how wicked it is that white Euro males do theology or that we live in the suburbs, if that's the case, or so on and so forth. That's all they can think about. The forgiveness of sins, you never heard it. Never, ever. Because that would be admitting that people are sinners. And they didn't want to do that. They just wanted to make life better now by having a smoother buggy ride, yes. Is that the beginning of the social gospel? Yeah, the social gospel. And it didn't fool me because that's what I heard when I was uh, in uh, the liberal church when I was a teenager, why I left the church. Not that I believed the true gospel. I thought, if this is all religion is to make the world a better place to live in, I think I'll just go get a degree in engineering and make it better that way. Why be religious? But see, the release from sins became a moot point because the gospel became a moot point. My dear brothers and sisters, if the fact that our sins are forgiven doesn't weigh heavily upon us in a manner of praise and gratitude, there's something wrong with us. Do you hear me? There's something wrong with me, but I'm thinking, well, I've heard that before. That's enough. I don't want to hear more gospel Tell me how to solve problems. No, the, the lack of excitement about the gospel is a problem, and I'll tell you how to solve it. Believing the truth. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to quote Green about who the poor are, but as I said, it was. I'll just summarize. People with no status. Now let's go to Luke 5. We're going to go forward a little bit here. Okay, so we've already had Luke 4.18. We have the theme of release from sins, which is translated forgiveness many times. Same word. And here we have this guy being lowered down, okay, by his buddies. He was lame. 
Seeing their faith, he, Jesus, said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. That's an interesting one to look up, too. In, in Luke-Acts, that's a bad thing. It's not that God doesn't want us to use reason, but this would be plotting in some bad way. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, yes. <laughs> Let me read on, verse 22. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins have been forgiven you, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were struck with astonishment, began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Do you see the preview of Acts 3? The layman is healed, the glorifying God, the being able to walk immediately without going to physical therapy. Wow. Wow. And the proof is that Jesus Christ releases us from sin. Rich. Go ahead. The difference is that the real gospel is about the release of sins. It's mm-hmm. about the fact that you are going to hell because of your sins. And the social gospel or the other false gospels is about improving your life. Yeah. Trying to relieve temporal problems to a certain degree. And that's what I heard as a young lad in a liberal church was solve problems in this world by religion and it rang rather hollow to me because not that I was a Christian I wasn't but I thought I know for a fact that there's ways of showing kindness and solving problems without being religious there's nothing uniquely Christian about that but okay there may be people that do kind good deeds and I'm glad to see that but only God can release us from our sins. And that liberal church didn't want to admit that there was sin, judgment, retribution, and damnation. They wouldn't admit that much. So therefore, the gospel become, became a moot point, And what we had left wasn't anything that was uniquely Christian. Am I saying Christians ought not to do alms? No, don't get me wrong. We ought to be kind and compassionate people that do help people around us. Absolutely we should. But not without the gospel. Yes. Oh, yeah, Peter. I guess I'm a little slow on this one, but verse 23, can you uh, explain that again? Which it is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? Exactly. So, um, if it was just a faith conversion, there's no sign of that visually to the public? 
Well, in the fa in this case, when he says, "So that you may know," he does both the physical yeah, and the spiritual obvious. healing. Yeah, saying your sins are forgiven, they might think, "Well, that's great. How do we know that's true?" He looks like the same lame guy that we hauled in here, and their murmuring was that he would even say such a thing, and so the healing made it obvious that we have someone here on the scene of history more than just an ordinary teacher in Israel. So he's demonstrating both. He demonstrated that the first statement was true by the second action. Now in the case of the lame man at the, tent, at the gate, beautiful, the healing happened first. The preaching of forgiveness of sins comes next week. See, I can use reviews and previews too. Next week, we look at Peter's sermon. It is unbelievable. It's, it's, I don't know if I can get through it in a Sunday, but next week, we'll go to Peter's preaching that was a response to the healing. And then, when it's time again for Sunday school, we'll go to the response of the Jewish leadership and what they had to say. And they were not too happy with Peter preaching Christ. I'll give you a preview. They don't forbid healing. They forbid preaching the gospel. Go ahead and heal anybody you want. Just don't tell us about Jesus. Oh, there's the problem. Let's get, I got about six minutes here. Another one, Luke 24, 46, 48. This is the great commission in Luke, and it's interesting how it's given. And this is, remember, the road to Emmaus? And he opened up all the scriptures and explained to them prophecy about himself. I think anybody who's ever read the Bible has thought about, I wish I had been there. Wouldn't that be a sermon you'd like to hear? Well, we'll have all eternity to hear that. But in the meantime, we have the scriptures. Luke 24, 46. Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Here we have two themes from earlier in Luke that preview what will happen in Acts. Repentance, the first one. Remember... When Jesus was dining with sinners and they were offended at that. So why, don't, why are you dining with sinners? And Jesus said, I didn't come to, for the healthy, but to bring sinners to repentance. That's a theme in earlier in Luke. So we have repentance, part of the Great Commission, and the forgiveness, whereas aphesis is the Greek, which means release, which reminds us of Luke 4, 18. So after Jesus ascends into heaven, which is narrated both in Luke and in Acts, they will go forth preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins. That's what he did. So they're like the master. They're told to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father Joel Green, by the way, who, if you want to spend money on a commentary on Luke, don't spend a penny 
until you buy Joel Green from the New International Commentary of the New Testament. Oh, man, is that good. He's the one that helped introduce me to Bailey. If you were, were there when I preached Sir Luke, I cited this Bailey who has great material. Here's what Green says. He underscores the truth of the resurrection, its actuality and its significance within the divine plan, and ensures that the disciples grasp fully how the past, present, and future of God's activity be, belong to one great mural of salvation. In this way, the evangelist assures the capacity of his followers to serve as effective witnesses. In this climax of the risen Lord's revelation to his disciples, then, we find the key point of transition into the book of Acts. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins and that the Messiah suffered and rose again from the dead. Wow. Now into Acts. I've got a few minutes. This is another thematic verse that serves as an outline to the book of Acts. And as you read through Acts, you'll see this playing out as Jesus said. Acts 1.8. Remember they wanted the restoration of Israel now, the restored kingdom, but that's yet for the future. Here's what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, when we read Acts, the Holy Spirit falls upon them at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then it spreads through Judea. And then God brings in Samaritans in Acts 8. Then he brings in God-fearing Gentiles in Acts 10. Then it goes all the way to Rome. Now the question arises, is this the end? And the best reading is no. Acts doesn't end with a definitive, this is it. There is no more. The idea would be that the gospel would continue to go forth to the ends of the earth through the witness of Christians as it is to this day. So this is another programmatic or thematic verse that controls Acts, so we would do well to keep that in mind. So this leaves the mission as ongoing to the ends of the earth. Now, there's some discussion in the commentaries about what the ends of the earth mean, and it doesn't seem to be a direct reference to Rome, okay? As far as the meaning, how it was used, how this phrase was used, and it would go elsewhere. Now, let me close with Isaiah 49.6. So here we have yet another review as well as a preview. If you don't, you'll remember this. Reviews, previews. When you read something in Acts, is there a review? And is there a preview? That's how he does that. And these are found in the mouth of reliable witnesses. And those are the ones the Holy Spirit's come upon. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, 
It is too small of a thing that you, now this would be the servant, which is Jesus the Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8, Isaiah 49.6. Who says the Great Commission is not found in the Old Testament? <laughs> he said Les Feldick. Well, he's not... I, yeah, yeah. I know, but I would say about Les Feldick, that's not a very good reading. He would not have passed Dr. Versaput's class. No, 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 no. Bad reading. No cup of coffee during fellowship time. We want to learn how to read. And since this is an unusual phrase to the remotest part of the earth, how can we miss Isaiah 49, 6? It says the same thing. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to bring to us release from sins. Whether our physical estate is as dire as the man at the gate beautiful, or in some other state, our spiritual state was utter hopeless slavery to sin and in bondage to darkness. And thank you that you brought the light of the gospel so that we found release from sins and salvation and eternal life. If there's any here today who do not have these gifts, may they turn to you through the gospel to repent and receive forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.